things last time we spoke. I'm here with Jeff Howard, raconteur, avant-garde, that he'd be. So Arcana is, it's a very long-term project about performing uh, occult rituals in a magic theater to uh, unlock the mysteries of the multiverse. Where's the magic coming from? We basically just unspooled more um, DMT, pineal gland, uh, ayahuasca, uh, knowledge that, uh, that certainly that I possess. So, so very impressive. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting because, um, if you listen to, uh, which is where I learned a lot about all of, uh, Terrence McKenna's beliefs was that there's fucking hours, tens and tens of hours of his, uh, are there, you, you want to call them lectures, but they weren't really lectures because he would just sit in a hall and talk to people and like people would voice their opinions and their thoughts. And then Terence was such a enraptured guy that people would just sit and listen to his responses to them. But um, they're all on YouTube, or at least they were when I was like looking into him. But so yeah. there was one thing that he really wanted to do, which was to take uh, virtual reality, which at the time was in a an infantile state. It was nothing. It was there was no. There was they had the virtual boy and it was a it was a headache inducing vomit machine. Um, but the what he really wanted to do was take people and put them in uh, like, you know, get them to take uh, the the correct amount of DMT, uh, which is a lot of DMT, uh, more mm. DMT than your brain or your body tells you you should do. Um, right. And then you get what he called the the breaking of the chrysanthemum, because if you don't take enough, according to Terence, then you you hit this like fractal pattern and you just stare at it for 15 minutes. Because that's the other thing about the uh, the smoked DMT experience as opposed to the ayahuasca based DMT experience is that it's a lot more intense and it's a lot more consistent by the sounds of things. But what he would suggest is that you'd 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 take three large hits off of a DMT crack pipe, essentially, um, and then um, you would you would hit the chrysanthemum, which is this right. insane fractal, like un unpossible. It's not just impossible; it's unpossible. The geometry doesn't make Euclidean sense to any human brain. Uh, and right. you would smash through that. You would you would power through that and go uh, on a journey through a tunnel, essentially. And then there was a and then you would go to this room, this underground palace. Um, right. And uh, it, I, he said that there was a, a weird level, like just a, a knowledge that you were underground, you were under something, you were in a, a place that was under a great volume of, of, of surface. And then um, within this space, you would meet what he called mechanical elves, but people have described them as aliens, people have described them as... Um, this guy called Joe Rogan, who's a massive psychonaut in America, he, uh, he describes right. them as... Um, uh geometric patterns of love and that's another yeah. thing that's really weirdly consistent is that these creatures aren't they're not just impartial they are benevolent they love you and they welcome you back to the the, the true realm the true space and these patterns spell out the meaning of the universe almost like a matrix code that runs in front of you and uh and while it's not actually possible to understand the language you can try and in and, and engage with them and try and talk to them and then you will be brought back uh that's the other weird thing is it's like uh, the, the dmt experience apparently is one of the most intense psychedelics experiences you can ever have but within half an hour of take like within 15 minutes of taking it it's over you know, yeah. you, you might still have some of the, the afterglow and the effects around you, but, you know, relative to where you've been, you're definitely back. Um, 
and so yeah and so like the thing that uh really interested me was the idea that terence what he really wanted to do and what he was so excited for computer graphics and computer generated imagery to do would be to take someone give them this dnt experience and then immediately after they come back put them in a computer headset uh, what we know now as a, as a vr headset and then right. say look how close is this how what's is it is it the same what's different and then you could use you know uh, programs or you know game engines or whatever to take the feedback from the people who were saying ah it's, this is right and this is wrong and this isn't quite there and that could use some work and that's the same and that's not and then you could build a virtual space that represented this dmt space but in a world that's not tethered to a chemical imbalance in the brain um, right. and i like and i really do feel that now with the the advances in vr we are kind of closing in on a world where that could be possible you know obviously we'd need um we need a uh, governmental law to to uh, allow for things like that because it's the scariest thing on the planet a, a, a substance that makes people think in a benevolent way but um... right right <laughs> yeah no we know we know how scary that can be sure so fascinating you cut out Ready? oh sorry can you can you hear me now yeah 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 we're good okay cool fascinating so yeah, fascinating. So for, for anyone listening at home, um, we are not advocating the use of illegal chemicals. Um, it's, it's, okay, fair, fair, fair enough. Go people. Yeah. You have in, a freedom in, to choose. <laughs> <laughs> in, 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 yeah, in, in sort of my official professional capacity. Of course. I, of, course. I, of, course of course I can. But um, wonderfully interesting questions that, that you raised there. And I like that word you use, uh, psychonaut. Uh, which which sort of implies an, an explorer of the mind or of the soul, because that's what psyche originally means, not would be like a navigator. So psyche and soul navigator. Um, and I think that um, there's something to be said for thinking about the realms of psychedelia, the realms of um, ritual magic and meditative practice, um, and the um the sort of um well a, a, it's, it's a, the, the realm of the virtual the, the realm of, of, of video games and vr and all that stuff of thinking of all three of those things as kind of what we might say is isomorphic as sort of mapping onto each other uh in, in one way or another and i think that if if we do think of them as isomorphic or at least as bearing sort of interesting metaphorical resemblances to each other i think it can deepen what it is that we're trying to do in any of those spaces. So, you know, from our perspective, I mean, we're game developers. And so to say that um, that a function of a video game can be to help somebody explore altered states of consciousness, maybe altered metaphysical states, um, to, to navigate their soul, to navigate their mind, that's a really ennobling and uplifting um, even possibility for video games to aspire to. And, you know, I, I actually think that um, that commercially released video games um, in, engage with some of that um, impulse some of the time, with some of that soul-exploring impulse. I mean, certainly uh, I've been playing an indie platformer called Blasphemous, which is a... Um, it, it's kind of, it, I mean, it's Dark Souls influence, but really what's interesting about it is it is influenced by Spanish Catholicism. It's made by um, a group of Spanish developers from Seville, and they have kind of made this game 
that I mean, it's a 2D platformer with hack and slash elements, but uh, every part of it sort of resonates with these interesting, obscure um, sort of elements of, of Spanish Catholicism. You, you wear this thing that's like a caparote or a caparote on your head. You, you're a penitent uh, warrior. And, you know, they're doing interesting things with um, with Spanish artists. So, um, Velazquez, I can't pronounce um, very well, but um, and and then they're also drawing upon the writings of various uh, Spanish mystical theologians in order to kind of depict this. It's a very very gory um, kind of ascetic um, game of, about sort of uh, brutal mysticism because it's ultimately based on combat. But when I play Blasphemous, um, I feel like I am sort of on a spiritual pilgrimage and like I am engaging at a at a pretty deep level with um, the experience of atonement, uh, with the experience of kind of um, mystical transformation, with the experience of uh, of martyrdom and sort of visions of um, of of sacred pain and and the transcendence of pain. And I mean, it's 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 a 2D platformer, but it's it's doing all of those things for me, and I don't even feel like I have to force it. It's just what it feels like every time I sit down. So, you know, if that's possible in a 2D platformer, then um, it's it's potentially possible in in all kinds of genres, and certainly um, sort of peripherals and 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 alternative formats like VR. Uh, lend themselves to those things. The other thing, though, is let's say that a person, they were not primarily a video game developer, but maybe they were coming from a different perspective. Maybe they were like uh, um, somebody who was meditating or practicing ritual magic. Well, maybe it would be useful to think about the creation of um, of a ritual as generating a game uh, that has its own um, magic circle. That's a classic term from uh, game studies, this idea that um, that which occurs within the uh, social situation and rule system of a game uh, has a different value and meaning than that which is outside of, of, uh, of the game. So maybe you, know, you, you could think about um, the creation of rituals and meditative exercises as an exercise in game design. Um, or, you know, if, if somebody, just hypothetically, because I can't advocate it, were in the realm of psychedelia and experimenting with such things, um, maybe thinking about uh, the, the, the context of ritual magic and spirituality could keep that from devolving into um, what it sometimes does, which is, um, you know, people just kind of um, hedonism, you know, just mm -hmm. just um, um, smoking joints and eating potato chips. And um, and I, again, don't have anything against that um, as, as, as a practice, but I think it is certainly possible for um, the for uh, chemicals to be uh, debasing as well as ennobling. And, and so maybe the, the spiritual context helps to sort of raise things up. And the other thing is that um, a classic thing that, hap that happened to some of the psychonauts of the 1960s uh, when they were really um, pushing the boundaries of um, what could be consumed and that kind of thing, um, there is always the, the danger that um, we take our symbols our visionary experiences uh, as absolute truth and 
and completely real. And and when people do that, um, that's dogma. And you know, I mean, I think about um, the Emperor Constantine, who saw the the cross, in, the vision of the cross, in in the 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 Latin phrase that said, uh, "In this sign or under this sign, conquer." And wow, I mean, talk about some consequences for um, believing that your symbol is a literally true. And and B, not really thinking about the fact that the cross was supposed to be like a pacifistic emblem. Anyway, um, there's a real danger in um, taking one's um, one's mystical visions as authoritative truth. There's a, a line from um, uh, Alistair Crowley, who's who is one of the. Um, for better or for worse, one of the uh, conservative authorities on ritual magic who, who underlies my my work and life a fair bit. Um, Crowley, in a book called Lieber O, which is his instructions for um, rising on the plane, so kind of upward astral projection, uh, he says the in this book are spoken of many things, um, gods, spirits, planes, angels, demons, these things may or may not be real. The student is most earnestly advised against attributing objective validity, uh, objective existence or philosophical validity to anything he experiences while doing these rituals. So in other words, Crowley, I mean, who who never met a demon he didn't like and um, had all kinds of, of vivid mystical experiences, basically said the first thing you got to do um, if you're going to undertake such things, uh, is entertain a healthy skepticism that prevents you from becoming, in, in his words, um, obsessed from from uh, taking a, a potentially inspiring vision and turning it into dogma. And the beautiful thing about the virtual is that it reminds us to do that, right? We, you can take off the headset. You can say, okay, I did have that amazing vision, but for now, I'm going to disregard it as 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 having been virtual. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna switch off that machine for a while which i just think is a really healthy thing to be able to do yeah that's uh wow there's there's a lot to unpack there that's really that's that's really cool i think um one of the things that like you said that really struck a chord with me was the idea that the um like things can become dogmatic unless we view them with a healthy level of skepticism i think that to an extent um that's where the problem lies right is we want things to be true we as humans love faith it's it's our it's our guiding premise that allows us to exist in societies the scale and size of which they do right without without uh faith none of this is possible without faith in a greater being i mean i've recently been reading uh, a book called sapiens by yoel what's his fucking name uh yoel noah harari and it's, um, it's about the history of humanity um, and how we came from a group of, you know, many different uh, things like Neanderthals and, and uh, Homo florensianus and uh, all these different types of sapiens. Uh, and then we've only got Homo sapiens left. And his point is that it's our ability to believe in communal myths that leads to our ability to organize in such large groups. Um, right. One of the things that I found uh, really interesting about what you were saying about the uh, the use of these uh, substances, etc., that can become so dangerous is again is that 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 lack of um, skepticism, that lack of um, examination, right? The uh, the idea the, the idea that you don't you know I, I, it drew me to a phrase. Um, it's from a song actually. It's a it's a really angry guy who's who uh, 
who's talking about like sort of political upheaval and and his whole band is about um he's a punk band so it's all about sort of protest etc but like the, the phrase that comes to mind is send in the clowns and i love that phrase because it makes me think yeah sometimes you don't sometimes to argue in a and i think it's one of the main problems that we have with a lot of um a lot of the, the a lot of the arguments that are happening especially in like today's modern era are based on dogmatic ideals attacking each other on the on the basis of dogma and sometimes you need a bit of a bit of a bit of uh ridiculousness to 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 illuminate the fact that there are it's 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 a divine comedy after all this thing we call life right there's no there's no um there's no there's no truth as such because what is true is based on what survives and what survives is not based on what is right or wrong it's based on what survives so like you know, evolution isn't a, isn't an active process. A lot of people make the mistake of ascribing the biological process of evolution to some um, conceptual uh, benevolent creature. But in reality, evolution, like, you know, the peak of evolution is, is whatever is alive right now. It doesn't have to necessarily be the best thing. It doesn't have to necessarily be the most effective thing. I, I, ironically, most often, the thing that's the most adaptable, the thing that's most malleable is the thing that survives best in an environment, which is why humans are so capable of, of carrying on, because we are capable of not just changing our... We could, you know, to change a creature's behavior, to change a spider's behavior is is almost intrinsically impossible a lot of times. It's very difficult to get creatures to change their behavior patterns. You know, like turtles will run down the beach into the ocean on a full moon when they've been laid in an egg. It's just instinctually based into them. But human beings, you could change the way a human being could raise a child based on, you know, 20 years of difference. One generation is raised entirely different to the next generation. You know, one one generation of people, I'm, I'm you know, while using this example, I'm drawn to the uh, idea that when my mother was pregnant with me, she, they were told uh eat liver liver is really good for baby's development but then there was some woman uh and you know no offense to to you as an american but americans do tend to take things quite dogmatically in my experience yeah. and uh yeah. and she you know this american woman she ate nothing but liver and her baby unfortunately came out with a bunch of deformities and so as a result the doctors changed their advice to say no don't eat liver but it's like no this is ridiculous you just you just take it with a a grain of salt right you um introducing that heavy like that that slight skepticism or for me personally i'm just i just i eat everything with a with a massive grain of salt i love salt um so it's uh a, 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 maybe an unhealthy level of skepticism i approach everything with i i think my um because i i was originally going to be a scientist of all things i wasn't going to be an artist i didn't i didn't see it fated for me so i i learned i did a levels in chemistry biology and um and mathematics um so i uh i fortunately i can look at things like you know this pandemic has been something that i i haven't it's not so much that i haven't struggled to pass the information because the information is so difficult to pass but i can see a headline and be like well that's clearly based on absolutely nothing as opposed to that's that could be real you know like i have a an easier time i feel due to um empirical reasoning which is something that you get from science uh dismantling a concept but i think there's also a a school of thought that is too based in that dogmatic approach to science right because science is just another faith system it's just one that's a bit more malleable and a bit more adaptive than than the previously held faith systems yes um again very well said um i am reminded of the comedian bill hicks 
Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And and that final monologue, that that finale from one of his shows about um, Revelation Ride. Yeah, and 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 the concluding thing about it's it's just a ride, you know, it, it, this existence that we're sort of incarnated into, um, you know, it has it has thrills and chills, and it's very fun to ride on for a while. I've always liked it when he says for a while, um, because there's a certain melancholy there. Um, but but you know, what, when we, his notion is that um, it kind of a um, um, a, a spiritual figure, a, a savior figure, a, a Buddha, a, a Krishna, a Christ, um, that what those people ultimately sort of do for us is that they remind us that things are, are, are just a ride. And um, of course, and we kill you know, those people. Hicks <laughs> we, we kill those people. Yeah. <laughs> Shut that guy up! I got a lot of mist in this ride. <laughs> Get the furrows on my brow. Look at the money in my bank account. Shut him up. This yeah, must be real. It's, it's... <laughs> but it's just a ride. Yeah, it's the most beautiful monologue, and, and and you can tell how beautiful it is because we've both of us memorized portions of it. We could probably go back and forth and and do most of the monologue. Um, and I think maybe the reason, one of the reasons why that is such a powerful um, moment in, in in his performance, is that he truly is tapping into. Um, do I want to call it skepticism? Like skepticism as a route toward this, but but it's it's a kind of um, so it's Vedic distrust. It's, it is Vedic. It sure is. It's 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 a distrust of appearances as. Um, as ultimately illusory and um yeah you could you could go vedic for sure um you could go plato although kind of like the Tao as well right like the the start of the Tao de jing starts with that which is written as Tao is not really Tao. and here's the mm. book about the Tao. like <laughs> <laughs> yeah the the way that can be spoken of is not the way mm -hmm. yeah no that's it that's in, it's interesting stuff and it's sort of um, if somebody were a semiotician, uh, semiotics is the study of signs and signifiers and how people communicate with them. If somebody were a semiotician, they would talk about the the distance between um, the signifier and the signified, which is the the classic example to to loop back to Magritte. That idea that the painting of the pipe is not the pipe itself; it's just a, a representation of the pipe. It points to the pipe. It signifies the pipe. So that's part of it. Um, the uh, deconstructionists of um, who who were kind of weird French linguistic theorists from, from the sixties, they talked about the gap between signifier and signified, which is sort of a related idea. You also hear people talk about the, the sort of saying the map is not the territory. So our, any given knowledge representation, um, a religion, uh, a method of science, a philosophy, uh, it's a map and it could be a very useful map, but it's not the territory. So there's going to be things that are missing from it. There are going to be things that are inaccurate, that are, um, false distorted projections. And, also an interesting thing about maps which i'm not sure if you know but there's uh in especially like maps of cities um map makers intentionally put mistakes in so that if someone copies their map then they can um they can tell um and they can use that as like a signifier to copyright however due to the fact that these maps are used so commonly eventually 
Uh, there's a really great example of it uh, happening in London where there was this street, I can't remember what the street was called now, but like, you know, there was a map maker who put this intentional mistake in so that they could, you know, the map was still accurate, it would still work, but there was a there was a mistake there that they could use as a copyright claim like basis. However, the map was in circulation for so long that the place started to be referred to and so like businesses and other other establishments would start calling themselves by the name on the mistake on the map so then at a certain point that map becomes accurate due to the fact that their inaccuracy was intentional and was still correct uh yeah it's just a weird part of maps right like yeah yeah um i think that that is um is 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 true i mean there there are just quirks to the ways that um things are included or not included there's also um the question of projections i mean you know the mercator projection the um this notion that that in order to um represent a 3d space on a 2d plane you've, you've got to smash it and when you smash it you get the um you, you you get you get distortions you get um continents that look um, far bigger than others when when that's not the, not true and so yeah i mean i think that um y your point about uh, quirks and distortions in maps um is, is true literally and and also true um metaphorically and, and I, I just think it's worthwhile um, no matter what area of inquiry we are working in, uh, technical, religious, mystical, artistic, um, it's always worth being able to sort of um, back up and, um, you know, go outside and run around for a while and get some perspective on, on, on the sort of heady metaphysical realms that we are uh, exploring because it's just too easy to to forget those distortions forget those deliberately inserted quirks uh and and in so doing to confuse the map for the territory yeah man it's like uh i mean i i often say that like um there are certain people that have never been punched in the face and it shows and it's like i don't think that you should go punch people in the face who deserve to get punched in the face but i think those people should maybe do a, a boxing class or something because it's good for you it humbles you it takes you back into the world of the of the living and it makes you realize like you know going and smelling the flowers or or falling over and skinning your knee is like it's 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 it reminds you that, oh, I'm just in a meat vessel, and this meat vessel is the vessel I happen to have been given for this particular ride of the, uh, of you know, if you believe in reincarnation, that this particular soul ride of, 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 of consciousness. But yeah, I think there's a, you know, most of the time, people who are top-level thinkers or whatever, they, they'll, they'll work on a problem for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And then it's not until they sort of like, you know, take a week off and go for a bike ride or whatever that they they come back to it and go oh oh that's exactly what my problem was i just needed to do to do that uh speaking of um psychedelics and researchers i don't know if you ever heard about back in the uh the heyday of the 60s god i love the 60s but like in the heyday of the 60s when they first discovered things like lsd um they did this set of tests where they had a bunch of uh it was open to any phd research scientists i believe don't quote me on that but it was a it was a group of tests they did with lsd and they um they took these scientists and the the only qualification required for acceptance onto the program was that these scientists had to be high in their field had to be very like respected in their field and they also had to have had a problem that they had been stuck on for over six months and what they did was they took them and they put them in this room and they uh, they gave them all LSD 
Um, and then they they had them like you know acclimatize because so, for anyone who doesn't really like don't, doesn't know there's a there's a sort of a, a period where the LSD is being absorbed into the system and the and the and the brain isn't you're not tripping yet uh, and it takes about an hour to sort of start feeling the effects normally and then it um, and then it grows for the next like hour or so and then for the next eight to twelve hours normally people are, are on on the trip. And so what they did was they took these scientists and they, 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 they gave them the drug and then they let them sit there for an hour and then they let them sit in the room and sort of come up and experience it. And, they, and then after two hours of being on the drug, um, they introduced them to their papers, their research uh, that they've been working on and they've been stuck on. And I think there was some ridiculous number of them, like 90% of people... Uh, 90% of these scientists felt that after they'd, you know, after they came back from their trip and they looked at their notes and their research, etc., that 90% of them had found something that would then lead to a breakthrough. Um, and again, not not condoning people go out and try things, but like it's just a very interesting thing that maybe like that, you know, going for a walk in the in in, in nature or or taking a break or looking at things from a new perspective is often the 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 most the, the only way to truly make progress in something that you're stuck with is to take a new perspective or a new approach or to go and learn something else and then come back to the thing that you're stuck on. Because if we just grind away at the problem, you just you, you can't you can't see the wood for the trees. Right. Like you can't. There's a there's a certain level of um, lack of self-reflection that occurs when you're you're stuck in a problem for too long. Yeah, I, you know, that's uh very helpful and another approach that's very much in in the in in the same space is um dream incubation and dream work so um mm -hmm. dream incubation is interesting because it, it's got a really ancient tradition uh goes all the way back to kind of dream sanctuaries that um the followers of asclepius who was apollo's son uh, the founder of medicine, they they would have these temples that would be for the purposes of using dreams in order to gain insight into into problems, the solution to problems. So you you would go to the temple and you would like I don't know um, talk to the, the temple keepers, maybe make a sacrifice, and then you would um, after being ritually purified, you would go and you would. Um, like write your problem down on a sheet of paper, uh, parchment, and, and and you'd fall asleep on top of it. And then the idea is that uh, a dream would come to you, uh, inspired by Asclepius in, in oracular fashion, that would help to answer your your problem. And I have a, a colleague, uh, Dr. Robbie Bosnak, who is at Pacific Grad University in Santa Barbara, California, uh, probably the greatest American institute for depth psychology in the neo Jungian style. Uh, and also mythology. Uh, it's it's the, probably the best place to study those at the graduate level. I've supervised a couple of PhD dissertations that were on myth and video games and uh, depth psychology and video games there. Anyway, the, mention, the reason I mention Robbie Bosnak is he is making a uh, virtual dream sanctuary that is that is an Asclepian temple where you go and do exactly the, the procedures for dream incubation, but you would do them in VR. 
Uh, and that, you know, it, it relates to this sort of broader tradition of DreamWorks, which is where um, Spielberg's DreamWorks Studios comes from. Um, that is, is named after the idea of DreamWorks, which is that you um, think about a problem that you have before you go to sleep at night um, and, and then hope that you, you sort of, you got to write down your dreams because otherwise they don't get stored in, um, in long-term memory. But the idea is that our unconscious is sort of constantly working on on problems in some in some ways that's its job and the way robbie likes to say it is that um ideas are alive and they want to communicate with us and one of the ways that they do it is is through dreams so yeah i um you know um even if somebody is not in a position where they can explore psychedelia um we all dream and yeah, yeah. that's one of the most psychedelic we, experiences you can have, right, is to have a dream. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, you know, again, it, it abuts onto the mystical because Robbie um, would do some kind of um, anthropological interviews where, where he would go to um, – he would go to, for example, um, the, the bush in, in Australia, and he would meet with some of the aboriginal tribes, and he would try to talk to them about dreams, and, and he actually found it kind of frustrating because the some of the aboriginal understanding of dreams was just completely counter to Western metaphysics. So, so like a shaman would sort of say, well, I um, went to my tent, and I laid down, and then I was riding on the back of an eagle. And Robbie Bosnack <laughs> would be like, so, but you mean like you, you dream dreaming? About, yeah. And, and no, the shaman would be like, no, I was on the back of an eagle, and then I, uh, and then I was back in my tent. And so Robbie, the only commonality he could come up with um, in cross-cultural definition of dreams uh, is that you start in one place, and then you're in another place. So, in other words, the the shift of consciousness the shift of of locus or location he found to be the the kind of key element of of dreaming and and you know um now that we're all sort of um kind of consigned to virtual interaction via discord via the podcast that we're doing via teams meetings um and via vr um that question of virtuality as dream of virtuality as spiritual realm, of virtuality as akin to psychedelic experience, I, th I feel like it's sort of gained a new urgency. Um, mm. it, 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 things things go through cycles, and um, oh, the, there was a time when um, Second Life was super popular, and virtual worlds were everybody was using that in, in education, and and there was a wave of psychedelic spiritual research that was thinking about. Um, dream realms and spiritual realms as virtual worlds and then that thing kind of died down and and then um you know vr has been through a couple of cycles so there was the 90s attempt at vr which was just not quite there technologically so like you say with the virtual boy uh it was vomit inducing and, and it but but now and so it was it's so strange to see those cycles in in technology and also in the thought that accompanies technology because when vr was kind of coming back. Uh, I certainly felt some skepticism because I remembered Lawnmower Man and I remember what happened in the 90s. And but then along comes Half Life Alex, and then okay, well maybe this maybe this is commercially viable. Maybe this really is going to you know become a big thing again. And, and uh, I, I tend to think that the the beauty of technology is ultimately that it is a vehicle for 
um, for human experience and, and, and for thought. So, you know, even if um, Star Wars Squadrons or whatever the the, the new VR um, Star Wars game is going to be, e even if VR doesn't catch fire as much as Valve would like it to or, or Disney would like it to, um, I still think that it's good that it came back in a big way because it's got us, again, thinking hard about the distinction between reality and illusion and the virtual and the real. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because, um, I mean, it's slight tangent, slight segue, but it reminds me of, uh, because we've been talking about magic systems as well, uh, there's, there's an idea for a VR game that I really want to make. Um, I don't know how I go about doing it because I've fucking no idea how to develop for VR. But the uh, right. the, the core concept, uh, if someone wants to steal this idea and make it, please go for it. I don't care. It's your idea. You have it. Ideas are trash. Execution is everything. Um, but um, so the idea is that you it's essentially like a wizard duel where instead of it being based on, um, like, say, button inputs, it's based in VR and it would be a sort of meta-knowledge-based dueling game uh, where you'd have to sort of know about the different schools of magic that exist within the game, but it's all based on the, the verbal, somatic, and uh, component parts of, like, spellcasting. And so you'd go into it as, I don't know, one person... Let's just use, like, D&D as our basis. Like, one person's a warlock and another person is a, is a sorcerer. Uh, right. or one person's a wizard and one person's a sorcerer, right? Because the sorcerer tends to have innate magic, whereas the wizard tends to use, like, components, etc. And so, right. like, the sorcerer pulls out his, his magic wand and is going to use his, like, you know, his first level spell slot of magic missiles. And the wizard has uh, a fireball, right? And you have to kind of watch the other person. And it only works in VR because on a keyboard it's kind of clanky. But in a VR you can, like, fake people out and juke people up. And so you can know that maybe the, the wizard only has a certain number of iron filings in his pocket. And so he reaches into the pocket and you can see him reaching into his pocket. And you're like, okay, well, that's his lower pocket. So that's that's got room for iron filings in it or whatever. Whereas, you know, that maybe his breast pocket's only got room for like a, a phoenix feather that casts a different spell. And so you have to then gauge, is he casting his most powerful spell with this this hand pocket grab? But you could also be bluffing and like and performing a ritual behind your back with a different with a different set of movements, right? And so it'd all be about knowing when to use your counter spells and when to use your your actual spells and like or to use your movement spells. Um, and I just I just love the idea of it being not not about Twitch skill like a game like League of Legends or something where it's all about um, how quickly can you execute your spells in relation to one another, but understanding the ritual that they're casting, how long that takes and how long you have to make your own decision. So I suppose there would be a Twitch element to it, but it's less about that. It's more about like, the strategy of a spell duel, which I think is something that no one's properly done in a game yet. Yeah, um, I really like that, the idea of a meta-knowledge-based wizard duel. And there was always something I was kind of drawn to in, in Dungeons & Dragons, the idea that um, that a, a magic user would have all those different pockets with the with the the mandrake and the eye of newts and the spell, you know, the different spell components. So yeah, um, it, it, add, it does add another level to things. It, it reminds me, I guess, of, uh, you know, classic showdown at high noon kind of thing where, where you guys are facing off and they're mm -hmm. kind of watching each other to see a first that kind of thing. So. Yeah. There's a, there's a really interesting idea in, um, in classic D and D one of, uh, Gary Gygax's first, first versions, I believe of spells, it might have been the second edition that, that they, they tried it out. But the idea that spells have an innate 
life to them themselves and so the idea would be that once you cast a spell so like a, a, a wizard prepares fireball but once right. he's cast fireball that fireball is now free in the universe and he can he like essentially forgets how to cast that spell once he's cast it and i really loved that idea that spells have their own like personalities and their own sort of life of force to them um yeah and then cool. on the on the um on the front of uh dnd it's quite funny it's just something that has triggered me talking about that was the idea that for me i find and i've like i've explained this to a guy who's recently like our, our new dm me and nate's new dm that i mentioned earlier the guy who's got uh wind weavers um because he's a new dm so he's still trying to find his feet and i've been dming for like over three years now so like i've there's a few things where I'm like, if you do this this way, it gives the players this impression, and that might not be what you're trying to do. So, like, you know, just little tips and tricks that I've learned from years of doing it. But um, one of the things I find most interesting about D&D is the, the communal spell that just owning the three classic D&D books gives you. It's this right. idea that it's like you know uh especially for new players like the, the more you play and especially if you've dm'd you're like oh no this is all just a communal like uh um uh improvisational game with dice uh, it's a communal storytelling game with improvisational uh elements provided through dice rolls that's the way i like to describe dnd to people but um i think the one of the key spells that you cast over your group is that I own the Dungeon Master's Guide. I have the Monster Manual. And these are my two special books that the players don't read. And ironically, most of the game is happening in the player's handbook that everyone reads. Everyone has access to all of the information in that. But the fact that I've got these two books that cost me money and are special and different to your book that the players are all using, even though we're all using the rules from that book, yeah. It, it gives that illusion that it's like i'm in control i know what's happening even though it's you've got less idea often than the players do about what the fuck's happening they're coming up with plans that you're like that's a great plan i'm just gonna steal that you guys don't know i'm gonna steal your plan but um i'm not sure if you you must have fucked around with D at some point or another oh yeah no in in my, my book so I, my second book in magic oh you've cut out uh, Oh, sorry. So in, in my second book, um, Game Magic, uh, A Designer's Guide to Magic Systems in Theory and Practice, um, there's some pretty long sections on on the history of magic systems in D&D &D and um, their evolution into various other tabletop games. Um, the, the idea of preparing or memorizing a spell and then um, losing it after you've cast it, and the idea that you only have a limited number of slots uh, is called a Vancian magic system. And and the reason it's called Vancian is because it comes from a fantasy author by the name of Jack Vance. Uh -huh. And yeah, and Jack Vance, um, he's really good. He, he's very poetic. Um, but Jack Vance... Um, you know, it, it's hilarious when you when you read the stories because they were written before Gygax and Artisan created D and D. They they inspired the, the, the magic system. But you're reading the stories and it's like you know, Molto the Magnificent uh, was about to go out for the day, so he decided to memorize uh, Burning Hands, uh, uh, Fireball, and Featherfall. And then he went on the adventure, and he cast his fireball, and then he'd already used it up, and so he didn't have fireball when he needed to fight the cybertooth, sabertooth tiger. The end. You know, and and, and so it, it it reads like, um, of course, it's much more poetic than that. But but it you're looking at that, and you're like, yeah, that's totally like playing, um, you know, first and and second edition Dungeons and Dragons, because that's where it came from. The other idea that you mentioned of 
once the fireball is cast, it is a living entity which goes off on its own uh, with its own volition is not an idea that I had heard. And it's fascinating. Uh, I, I, my feeling is that, um, that, that, that that's not coming from Jack Vance, that that is more of an animistic understanding. Um, again, a, um, animism, the, the notion that, uh, that each thing has a soul, uh, Shinto in, in particular is an animistic religion. So, so you can talk about the, it's not just that there's a, a stream spirit it's that there's a spirit of a particular stream or a particular mountain pass or, or, or whatever it is. So, um, you know, what you're describing there almost sounds like a fusion between a classic Vancean magic system with kind of an animistic, um, backstory to it like the idea that the reason you forget the spell is because the spell has sort of gone off on its own it reminds me of what i consider to be the greatest tabletop magic system of all time um which is a game called invisible sun uh you might have seen i've been posting some stuff on instagram about it uh it was this kickstarter that i backed maybe five years ago and it was made by monty cook games um monty cook is the gentleman who uh originally created the planescape setting for D D, which was which was effectively DD on acid it was uh the the <laughs> idea of, of, of it was a, the idea of a multiverse and um Lee Arcana has has some inspirations coming from Planescape, um, and and um, so so you know the, the the there was a city called the city of uh, they pronounce it Sigil in the game it, usually it would be Sigil but Sigil is this kind of donut shaped city that is effectively a hub between all of the planes of the multiverse on the Great Wheel which was the original way of thinking about the planar cosmology in in Dungeons and Dragons anyway this dude. Monty Cook, who originally made Planescape for D&D, um, he created Invisible Sun, and when you backed it on Kickstarter, the only way you could back it was at like the 300 uh, US American dollar level. Uh, and the reason was that, that that tier was called Summon the Black Cube. And what that meant is that one day I got this big, heavy, cube-shaped box in the mail. It's actually sitting right across from me right now. Uh, unmarked except for a few strange sigils on the side of it, and it unfolds like that puzzle box in the Hellraiser movies. Uh, and, and once you start unfolding it, you realize there's all these hidden flaps and envelopes and books, and in the black cube, there's actually a statue of a six-fingered hand, which you put on the table when you play, and there's these circular tarot cards. It's called the the um, the Sooth deck, and there is a kind of Kabbalistic tree of life that is uh, a configuration of different colored suns uh, that channel different kinds of energy. So anytime you cast a spell in Invisible Sun or do anything magical, you are required to put uh, one of those cards onto the Path of Suns. And, and there's always a card that sits in the six-fingered hand, which kind of rules over everything. And what happens is that what this means is that the, the Sooth cards affect, change the effects of spells that are cast. And so you are changing the magic system every time you cast a spell. And the more spells you cast, it's sort of like um, rapid fire throwing pebbles into, into some water. You get um, wider and wider ripples as a result. But it doesn't stop there because Invisible Sun um, 
it, it, it's not that it just has the one unifying magic system. It's that it has four completely asymmetrical magic systems that you do in completely different ways. Not schools of magic, completely different magic systems. So one of them, coincidentally called the Vancian school of magic, haha, um, the, the Vancian school of magic is basically playing Tetris with your your mental inventory. So instead of just spell slots where I can only have three first level spells, two second level spells, like it was in uh, in D and D, you actually have these cards that have irregular um, shapes on them, as if you're playing Tetris. And then your spells are different shaped cards that. So and the idea is that as you develop more mental capacity, your game of Tetris becomes more and more complicated. You can sort of fit more things. But that's not all, because there's a goetic system of magic, which is which is entirely a a uh, a system of summoning extraplanar entities, uh, and it's really ultimately about uh, negotiation with them. So there's this in, this entire set of rules for how you negotiate with a demon and, and how you try to make sure that they're not going to renege on their deal. Uh, but that, that's not all, because there's yet another magic system, which is entirely based on weaving together linguistic semantic concepts. So you might get a card. I had a, I was running this back when I was in South Dakota. Um, so th those are the, the, um, those are the weavers who weave elemental concepts, weave uh, metaphysical concepts. So I actually had a player who one of his concepts that he could weave was blood and another concept that he could weave was alleyways. And so any spell where he could conjoin those two concepts and their semantic associations, he could get. So he could be like, okay, um, blood has to do with hereditary relationships, with familial relationships, and alleyways are a place where you might get mugged. So I will weave these together, and I will cast a spell that will... Um, mug your great uncle at a distance or something like that well you know, you know and, and you can totally do that but that's not all because there's yet another magic system in the game which is the makers and the makers are crafters of magical artifacts so you have this elaborate uh, they call it the makers matrix but this complicated flowchart of reagents and um it's really about the 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 ways that you can succeed or fail at various stages of crafting and the impact that this can have in terms of uh, the, what you're trying to make and also kind of unexpected magical impact. So in other words, you've got the, the Vances, you've got the Goetics, you've got the Weavers, and you've got the Makers. And that's not even counting the Apostates, who are another group of magicians who repudiate all of the orders. They don't belong to any of them. So they've got kind of one-off fire and forget spells. And those spells, the, the Black Cube also contains um, hundreds and hundreds of, of spells that are on cards, uh, and they're all completely bizarre. Um, I had a another one of my players who got a spell which would allow him to um, remove his own face. And so he would have the and then and then and then send the face moving like twenty feet in another direction, and then he could make it talk to people, and that that was what the spell was. And like and they're all like that, but in completely different ways. There's a spell called finger snakes, which does exactly what it says. It turns your fingers into snakes, so you've got snakes going in all different directions. And so um, you know. And there's more to it than that too. I could talk about Invisible Sun forever. I won't. But but what I will say about it is that. Um, Every part of the production values, every little ouch of of 
of of strange tchotchkes and doohickeys that that you get ties into this overall magical lore about a realm called the actuality speaking of the difference between reality and imagination because the story idea here is that um you are denizens your players are denizens of the actuality they come from a realm of platonic abstractions uh, which is which is actually real in the platonic sense and the world that we think is real is called the shadow uh it's it's illusory it's just a reflection of things so what you're doing then is it's it is a game that is thematically about homecoming it is about returning to the realm of the actuality after a mysterious great war uh, has has had rendered you uh, exiles and trying to kind of reclaim your access to an understanding of of magic. So uh, but I love that um, as experimental and avant-garde and and just absolutely um, balls to the wall uh, weird as as invisible Sun is, it does have that very nice illusion to the uh, illusion that nice reference to the original D and D Vancean magic system with, through through the character class called the Vances. Um, everything old is new again, and and no matter how weird and experimental we get, it's always good to kind of think about our forebears and how they might inspire us. God damn, man, that sounds absolutely insane. <laughs> yeah, I was amazing. <laughs> I was gonna run it for uh, a staff group. Um, Andy Krzywinska, Che Wilbraham, um, Phoebe Herring, Tim Phillips, and R Rory Summerly. I was gonna, I was gonna run a, a one-off for them. And and that was like the week before lockdown, and then yes. lockdown happened, and and we didn't get to do it. But uh, and the the only problem with it is that it's not like you could in theory play it online, but so much of the game is about that ritual experience of manipulating. Right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's about how how ritualistically satisfying it feels to to just flipping these cards and putting them on the path of suns and, and all that stuff. So I think I think you know what the way Tanya said it is is we will save it as a celebration for when um when things get a little better relative to the pandemic oh god i need to get tanya on as well that's uh someone i've uh, i messaged yeah her. She, it's really funny she was like oh i don't know oh that huh. what would i talk about i'm like tanya <laughs> what the fuck like you're such an interesting person i'm sure we could figure something out to, to talk about for an hour um, yeah but uh, yeah ask her about ask her about the gothic or painting or both or yeah, gothic or <laughs> I think painting, video games, the avant-garde. Yeah, once once you got her going, she she would have all kinds. Of I'm a hundred percent sure of that. Well, I've 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 eaten an hour and forty six minutes of your Saturday, Jeff. Um, ah, so oh. um, this has been absolutely superb. I think this is a, a as good a point as any to uh, to call. This might be the first ever two parter that I've ever released. Ah. Um, I mean, yours is already the longest one that I uh, that I'd done. It was an hour and a half before, but now I'm thinking, no, I think we should we should split this up and make people come back for a second helping. Um, yeah, I think that's great, and I really appreciate you having me on. Um, so, um, you know, every, everybody remember that uh, you know we can separate the art from the artist, but but try to be the very best version of yourself. Uh, that you can be in the in the way that you treat others. That's that's really important. And then, um, you know, remember that uh, whatever route it is that you take toward um, imaginative spiritual exploration of your own soul, just be careful because um, inevitably, you know, any one of those routes entails some degree of risk. So don't confuse the map for the territory. Sorry, I didn't mean to end your podcast with a cheesy He-Man style moral, but no, I. 
That's beautiful. And I would I would add to that though that it's like it's also about being uh authentic, right? Like if you do mm-hmm. have like it's it it's nah, the thing I find often is that the things that people derive shame or are blackmailed over or whatever are the things that people try to hide. And if you don't try and hide the parts of your personality, if you're honest about the things that you've done and the person that you are in reality, then mm-hmm. nobody, like one, nobody can hold power over you, and two, nobody feels cheated. Right? That's the that's the problem. Like you know, people mm-hmm. will try and hide. Like you know, I openly admit I'm a fucking creep. I can be creepy. It's creepy. I I, I do creepy things sometimes. <laughs> but if if, if you're honest about it if you're if you're open about the fact that you're into some weird shit sometimes like uh-huh, I don't know, uh-huh. exploring psychedelia or all this shit uh-huh, then, right then then people can make an assessment on you based on the things you tell them but if you hide things yeah. then that's fucking scary and people don't trust you anymore yeah. right so yeah. yeah so you know the uh i think that's a beautiful beautiful ethic to end on man and uh, is there beautiful. anything you'd like to plug before we uh, before we call it oh gosh uh you know um arcana the arcana ritual theater has a facebook page and it has a uh an instagram and stuff like that check out piano metal the music from uh kyle morrison lovely check out the art of thomas van Uffel. um really good stuff he's got pages everywhere and um yeah check out invisible sun it's an incredible tabletop game Alrighty, well, and uh, and with that we will uh we will end the uh end the show good night good luck and awesome. fancies <laughs> all right